Hello, kindred spirits, and welcome to the Modcast, the podcast of the Ella Montgomery Institute, broadcasting from the beautiful campus of the University of Prince Edward Island. We are so glad you've tuned in. This is Modcast Season 2, Episode 2. I'm your host, Dr. Brenton Dickerson. In our quest to discover cutting-edge scholarship about the life and works of Lucy Ma Montgomery and join imaginative readers throughout the world, welcome to the microphone our special guests, Laura Robinson and Holly Pike. Laura Robinson is a professor of English and theatre and is also the Dean of Arts at Acadia University. She is a former Ella Montgomery Institute visiting scholar and is immensely active in the Montgomery community. She has co-organized two Montgomery conferences and has presented and published on topics such as gender, sexuality, and female friendship in Montgomery's works. Laura also curated the Canadian Homefront, Ella Montgomery's Reflections of the First World War as a traveling exhibit that came to the Confederation Center of the Arts in Charlottetown in 2014. Holly Pike is a recently retired Associate Professor of English at Memorial University's Grenfell campus. Montgomery is Holly's key focus of research, but she has also explored the works of Elizabeth Gaskell and Jane Austen. She has published several chapters on Montgomery, including a piece in Ella Montgomery and War in 2017. For the next 18 months, Holly will be one of the co-editors of the Institute's Journal of Ella Montgomery Studies. Holly and Laura have come together to create and edit Ella Montgomery and Gender, recently published by McGill-Queens University Press. This collection is made up of essays that came out of the Ella Montgomery Institute's conference in June 2016. The collection of essays explores Montgomery's life and works, thinking about her texts and contexts, exploring her living spaces and imaginative places, and tracking the stories and cultural ideas that Montgomery takes up and reimagines in her works. Laura and Holly, welcome to the Modcast. Thanks a lot for having us, Brenton. It's wonderful to be here, thanks. Yeah, well, I'm so pleased to, to have you both. I'm excited about the new volume and have been uh, pleased to kind of watch your work. And so we're glad to chat about it. What we want to do today is begin with books because we are book readers. That's uh, who we are, I think. And we're always anxious to talk about the ones that kind of, you know, our favorite books that get jammed into the seat couch cushions or the, uh, the between the seats in the car or jackets on walks or on our Kindle reader. And so, so right now I've been reading actually a, a, one of my past students. Uh, she just had a breakwater press book come out called Blue Moth Motel. This is Olivia Robinson. And she's right in that can lit mode. Uh, it's evocative, set well in kind of small urban landscapes. It's poetical, imagistic, interior. Uh, so I'm, I'm really loving that. So that, and then it's of course a pleasure to watch a student um, excel like that. And then this year, I'm also a panelist for the Hugo Awards, which are like a fan-based award for speculative fiction. And I'm reading through the novels to to get ready for this. And, and it's all women this year, six women novelists this year and last year, actually, who are the, the finalists in that category. And I'm reading a, a necromancer series, uh, super strange, uh, super weird. Uh, Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth is, are the names of the books. It's it's a, one of the strangest things I've ever read and super complex, really. I'm also reading the Ben Lefebvre's uh, 
edited collection, a name for herself. Okay. So this is Montgomery's nonfiction books. And we're, we're at a kind of a rich point in Montgomery publishing where we just have access to a lot of things we haven't had. Yeah. So Holly and Laura, what, where are you folks at? What, what are you reading these days? Me? For, oh, well, this is Holly for listeners. Yeah, um, oh, thanks. I'm uh, I'm reading um, <laughs> I'm reading mystery novels. I I've got I love mystery novels, and right now I'm on a kick of reading Marjorie Allingham. And I don't know if you know her work, her uh, detective um, from this long series she did mid twentieth century. His name is Albert Campion, mm-hmm. and the two that I read most recently, Trader's Purse and um, Pearls Before Swine, are set in World War Two, and they involve espionage and it, it's they're just great fun i'd like a mystery novels who can resist but i'm also reading and this is a book i came across quite by accident a book called female intelligence uh, women and espionage in the first world war and it's a scholarly study of um women's uh networks that women were involved in um in europe um that performed espionage work and 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 some of these networks uh, were recognized by armies, you know, by by governments, and women were were paid to, um, you know, spend hours a day looking out a particular window of their home to report what was going on at the train station across the street and so on. And it's full of charts: how many people did this and how many people did that. And it's absolutely fascinating. I've got to say, it's most fun like who thought you know i certainly didn't know that this stuff was going on and i i'm totally wrapped up in it oh, that's a, that, that's amazing i just finished um mary robinette cowell's uh, the lady astronaut trilogy of books but there's a bunch of short stories too and so the in the last one there was a spy a woman world war ii spy in it and it kind of features a bunch of women who flew for for american forces in world war ii i mean these were supply missions but they were often combative and and kind of grew out of there into this kind of large romping um eco science science fiction world it's kind of kind of uh uh, strange and and interior uh series it's it's unusual it's 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 pretty good yeah so and mystery i mean I've started, I try to re, been capturing some of those, I remember the original detective club books. So I've been trying to read some of those authors, but like I, I yeah, I, I get caught on one. So I started Dorothy Sayers and that's oh. really all the mystery I read until I finish her 10 uh, Lord Peter Whimsey books. And then I'll, I'll move on to somebody else. Like that's a slow rate. I'm, I'm in the 1920s. I think I, I better get going. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I I love Dorothy Sayers too. And, and there are yeah. similarities between Albert Campion and Peter Whimsey as uh, heroes for sure. But you must also know Connie Willis's works. Uh, I don't know Connie Willis's. Who's that? Oh, Connie Willis is an American, I guess you'd call it science fiction. I reread her stuff constantly. She wrote the book of hers that I reread most recently is Doomsday Book, and I reread it last year and have told everyone about it because mm-hmm. it's set in a 21st century pandemic and involves time travel, time travel to the Black Death. Wow, that's amazing. Great, great novel. Might be a little creepy to read just yet. Huh? <laughs> we'll oh, see. no, it's it's such a, it's such a, um, it's an affirming novel. It's, oh, it's nice. so... It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Excellent. Well, and that's a great, great recommendation as well. Laura, what about yourself? What do you, what's on your desk or in your bedside table? Well, it's interesting because I think Holly or someone else recently recommended the Doomsday 
booked me, which, so that's now going to be on my bedside table. I just went through a spate of reading sort of books that were kind of similar. So right now I'm reading, uh, I just finished reading The Other Black Girl by Zakiah Delilah Harris and Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Ivaristo, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And I think the latter one, The Booker, um, and that one, both of them are really amazing uh, books um, with some kind of focus on girlhood, which I'm always really interested in. Um, but Girl, Woman, Other is quite incredible because it tells all these different women's narratives um, or women identified uh, women. And, and it, through these different narratives that seem unconnected, you get a sense of a community. It's really, really quite lovely. But next up, right now I'm in between books, which always feels like a tremendous moment for me to, to take the next step. Um, but I have Anne's Cradle, of course, on my bedside table, The Life and Works of Hanako Murata, the Japanese translator of Anne of Green Gables. So I'm really looking forward to reading that. And it kind of goes back to a World War II scenario, which is interesting um, because she was translating it in that time period. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, well, good. I'm glad, actually. I saw the launch for that in June and, and was interested. And so I bought a copy for my wife for Christmas just because we lived in Japan uh, for, for a period. And, and so it was kind of that connection. So we're kind of curious. And I've been tempted to try and read it without cracking the binding. So I don't, I don't know how that will go. So, And I don't know if she'll listen this far into the podcast to find out one of her Christmas gifts or not. But... <laughs> But we'll see. I, I see. I let the cat out of the bag. No, it seems like a, it seems like a great book. I actually kind of have been liking books about books. It's been a, a, one of the things that I never would have thought of, I don't know, a few years ago. And now that it comes up from time to time. I, I've been reading Anne's Cradle, too. I hmm. don't know why I didn't think to mention that, but it is it's really interesting reading. I'm learning so much about uh, Japan and the situation in Japan in the early 20th century that I'm I, I just knew nothing about and and you know the personal story is oh it's it's ter it's moving it's 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 a great book that's that's awesome i've been it was just in a conference in eastern europe i had to go digitally i couldn't go live uh, last week because uh, for future folks we're in the kind of i don't know third or fourth wave of a pandemic at the end of 2021 and and the people were talking about books um moving into sort of communists late like late communist era countries and how how important it was some of these translations for creating kind of a whole new wave of scholarship and and a whole new generation of readers and then it took a bit of time but a whole group of artists that come out of these these books and so um and many of them are ones that that we uh love um uh, so yeah, I was I was I was there because of the C.S. Lewis connection, but it's the Kindred Spirit Society there, and so I made a connection between um, Lewis and and Montgomery, and so that's what I was speaking to, and 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 those books have gone out uh, subversively and uh, invitationally, I think, out to the world, and so I think that's I love I can't wait to get to that book, brilliant. So how do you like you're both you both. Uh, university professors or, or, or just until recently congratulations on your retirement holly uh, and and you know like professional like you're scholars right you've done this nice big scholarly book lots of articles like so how do you get like to there with montgomery's work so like how do you you know go from being just a reader to becoming a, an expert in her work laura do you did you want to did you want to start there 
Sure. Um, for me, it was an interesting trajectory because a lot of uh, Montgomery scholars can harken back to their grandmother reading them Anne of Green Gables or something like that. And Anne of Green Gables was always in my background, for sure. But the book I loved was Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. And so when I started my PhD at Queen's, um, my uh, Emma was to study Alcott. And then I determined that it would be really interesting to do comparators. Um, so, and, and to look at sort of a genealogy, like how, how did Alcott come to be? So I looked at The Daisy Chain by Charlotte Young, which is an evangelical novel that in, uh, in England um, that preceded hers that most people don't know about now, but was madly popular back then. And then Alcott, and then I wanted a Canadian um, kind of offshoot of that. And so Anna Gables and the series became sort of that moment for me. So almost as a secondary, but then Montgomery quickly took over. I mean, it was really quite fascinating for me. It was a time period where her journals were being published, right. where the Institute was founded. Um, so much stuff was happening in Montgomery uh, at the time. And I just totally um, got on board with it all. And, you know, going back to Montgomery and reading her as an adult and a scholar, I just realized how much was going on in there. So unlike a lot of Montgomery scholars who come to Montgomery criticism from a place of ardent Montgomery love, I have ardent Montgomery love. <laughs> But it wasn't, you know, following my childhood dream of, of getting to read Montgomery novels for a living. Now I just think, yay, I get to read Montgomery novels for a living. <laughs> um, thanks. Yeah, no, good. Excellent. Now, what, what about yourself, Holly? How did you find yourself in these two worlds together? <laughs> well, um, I did my, my PhD on 19th century British fiction, um, Elizabeth Gaskell. And um, when I finished my dissertation and, and published it, I was, you know, junior assistant professor um, at Grenfell. And I just couldn't look at 19th century fiction again for a little while. I was just, you know, kind of burned out with it. And um, yeah, it, so this is the late 80s beginning of the 90s and things on Montgomery were kind of picking up you know this fragrance of sweetgrass came out and you know such a simple little tale and those things and and I kind of thought well wait I've read all these novels dozens of times <laughs> you know here's a here's a new direction because yeah I, I I was a fan I got my first copy of Anne of Green Gables at Green Gables on a family visit um, in the uh, when I was 10 and um, you know read it on, on that trip got home um, went to the library and started reading all the other things and then acquiring them for for myself and you know when I finally grasped that the things that I had studied for my PhD were largely the things that Montgomery herself had read. And that as I reread all the novels in light of my academic reading, I just thought, no, there is an infinite amount of, of interesting stuff to be done here. So uh, I became, yeah, a Montgomery. I don't know what you'd call it, a scholar, I guess. I'm just a scholar. The whole notion that once you discover Montgomery, there's no looking back, right? It's like, she takes over everything. <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah, and in the 19th century, 
um, uh, literarily so kind of rich, but we see it, I think, especially in the bookshelves of the writers that we love that come later too, right? Including some, as you just mentioned, Laura, from the, from that century itself, right? They're also uh, moving richly forward uh, into the future. So yeah, well done. Excellent. So thank you. Thank you for sharing both. Uh, I, I love kind of hearing that the story, the encounter story, and uh, the way that Montgomery kind of opens up our imaginations, both as readers and scholars. I'm thinking, and thinking imaginatively, Holly, we just had uh, Alison McBain Hudson on the Modcast just uh, just earlier on in the season, and she's studying material culture. And And what I thought was a link to one of the things that you did was the, the way it's almost like trying to go into the books to the things that we can touch and see and feel inside the story, right? The central experience that we get through literary imagination. And I think it connects a bit to your reading the book as object and thing in the Montgomery's Emily series. Do, do you want to just tell us briefly about that? Because I thought that was a, a nice piece. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Thanks, Brenton. Um, I, I do think of, uh, I developed this because I do think of reading as a material practice. The feel of what you're looking at, the size of the font, what things are together on the page. And in the in the Emily novels, that's very much part of Emily's experience too. Early on, she talks about the the feel of books, you know, the smell of books, um, describing the covers. And when I thought about that in connection with her um, developing professionalism as a writer, and think of the things that she does where. Um, she protects her manuscripts. You know, she snatches her old yellow account book back from Aunt Elizabeth and burns it rather than having it seen. She um, snatches her poems back from Miss Brownell in school. And that distinction between that singular text that she's protecting and those texts that she chooses to send out to be published, that's the difference between you know, the, the sort of fetish text and the um, commodity text. And, uh, you know, I was thinking uh, in terms of thing theory where um, an object performs a designed function, but when it's not performing its designed function, it's a thing. And books in that series do take on other functions and Nancy's Bible stuffed with, with random things. So what I, I was, thinking of is my own experience of, for instance, reading a book in a new edition and seeing different things in it because different things show up next to each other on the facing pages. And that led me into thinking about how that functions in the professionalization of, of Emily as a writer. Excellent. Wow. That's uh, thing theory is of I don't know that I've said that out loud, so I'm so glad that you you brought that to us and I understand the links. And of course, even as you speak about it, you just see how kind of literary at multiple levels that the Emily series is. You know, it is a story, it is a book, um, but then there's books inside the book and there's books not written and poems not written and poems that are written that we only hear about and others that we see and stories that we don't get and books destroyed and books found and, and books shared and, and stories told. And so, yeah, no, it's, that, that's such a, a, 
a great way to think in 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 sort of a number of layers about the that book as books and book 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 <laughs> good stuff and laura too like um uh I, I was actually, it, it's a, it was a funny story. I was, I was being interviewed by actually it was the Bronte versus Jane Austen podcast, the bonnets at dawn podcast, where they have this kind of like literary shootout uh, between those, the, the authors they love. And it's become kind of a large, broad kind of conversation about women's writers, mostly 19th century, but they do Montgomery sometimes. And they were doing the blue castle and they was interviewing me about that. At the same time, I was researching Montgomery's novel, Anne's house of dreams, which is sort of a, a war shadow novel and a piece that then I was looking into those things and a piece I read of yours, like was connecting both those things around the idea of kinship, which I've also heard you speak about. And so could you just bring that, that idea together just a little bit for readers who would love to make connections across the texts. Yes, I'd love to. Um, what struck me about the Blue Castle and Anne's House of Dreams is that the heroines, or a heroine, um, it's Valency in the Blue Castle and Leslie Moore in Anne's House of Dreams, are in these really oppressive, imprisoned-like uh, situations. And they're held in thrall in those situations by the notion of kinship. Um, you know, Valency, it's her clan, her family, they're terrible to her. Uh, every time I read it, I think I, I see it as even more terrible than I did the time before, which is really interesting. I don't know if that's our changing sensibilities or just my sensitivity to the novel increases every time. So not only does the clan hold you in thrall, so Leslie is married to an abusive man who keeps her in this situation and her mother's been part of this and she has no choices um, in this situation. But what strikes me is that alongside this notion of kinship that you can't escape is a notion of deep relationships that Montgomery describes in, in terms of biological connection. And kindred spirits um, are two phrases that she uses to describe people who are not related to each other by any biological connection but who have this deep, deep uh, connection with each other. And so it's it was fascinating to me that she used the biological to describe something that's categorically unbiological for her. Um, and so what she does in these two novels is expose the ideological workings of the biological in the very moment she makes recourse to biological language to describe intense relationships because it shows how much we can't get beyond that notion of kinship in order to understand friendship and, and a deep connection. So, and I think in those moments too, she, she shows how clashness and family can be imprisoning for her heroines, even though we all often come to her novels and think that they are about exalting the family and you know all about the clan, she really kind of undermines that um, on on a really fundamental level. And again, it goes back to the doubleness that's always Montgomery. While she looks like she's endorsing something, she's also kind of you know exposing uh, the problems with it at the very same moment. Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't know. I, I mean, I grew up here in Kindred Spirits. I mean, I live in Prince Edward Island. We have like Kindred Spirits Lodge, and and we don't have the race that knows Joseph Hotel or anything. I think that would be just too far into geekdom. Uh, and uh, Montgomery love to to get that far, or uh, you know some of the other, you know, 
Emily's declaration, well, I'm, you know, I'm a star or I'm, you know, uh, I'm also of the new moon clan, right? These, these re-relations, right? Yeah. And, and the whole notion of like the pies, you know, a pie yeah. she is and a pie she will always be. So she doesn't seem to question that and on the other i think she really sort of unpacks it and lays it bare for what it is oh yeah i think you could go through all the novels um and and some of the stories and and really kind of see that kind of working and always with a bit of undercutting right you can't go the whole way all the time um like the four harbors people you know down by the shore oh those those i can't remember the names the mcleans and the mckinney's i can't remember what they are but you know uh you know saints preserve us i can't remember what the great phrase was uh but but then of course one of them becomes part of the the novel story too right and it's just it's just kind of the nature of what she does i think that's a brilliant thing i don't know why i never thought of the word kin in kindred you know growing up so <laughs> or ever right and yeah. and i think again that really shows us something about how we've just internalized this this discourse and to me too it, it exalts one kind of relationship over another so domestic relationships which then become kin relationships exalted but also the family is always exalted but sometimes to the detriment of the the individual in question um, no other way to talk about these relationships other than to put them in the language of the biological which i find fascinating but yeah kindred spirits is so interesting to me because you know i think people haven't gotten that that refers to familial um <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Like it's just, yeah, that's right. It's about reshaping, re redrawing the line. Well, think too of all the short stories that Montgomery wrote. Um, a bunch of them are collected in a, a collection called Akin to Anne about um, orphans finding families, and that's what mm -hmm. it's you know the the um, emotional and intellectual connections far far outweigh any benefit from a blood connection in those stories. You know that's that's just part of the way that she interprets relationships. You know, yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, well done, and I think I think that's why like the Kevin Sullivan miniseries, the phrase our Anne is more powerful than in the Anne with an E where she actually adopts the name like Shirley Cuthbert, right? Or something like that, right? And I think I think it it's it's I don't think it's a betrayal. I just think it 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 leaves um it tries to undo something that I think Montgomery or it tries to tie up something that Montgomery seemed pleased to let fly out a little bit, right? So yeah. It's intriguing. Okay, so let's. I want to talk about this collection, this uh, Montgomery and Gender collection, which has been some years in the works because it started with papers that come from a conference, and I know conference takes months and months of work, and and probably uh, the you know the people are writing their pieces, you know. Uh, thinking ahead in 2014, 2015, the conference in 2016, editing, and then uh, production and COVID. And so I'm just so glad to see this piece here uh, and from, you know, such an important press. And so I wanted to, uh, and, and, and it's also got like, you know, it's got scholars, it's got writers, it's got some international folk, it's got some emerging um, people working with the texts. So let's talk about, tell us a bit of that story. Um, as, Laura, why don't you bring us into the world of the book since we were talking about worlds of books uh, just a few minutes ago gosh i don't even know where to start um so the conference was as you mentioned it was really quite remarkable um it uh and it did start i mean 2015 
was when the proposals were due for the conference and we vetted them, I think in October of that year. And so um, we were amazed. Uh, Andrea McKenzie was my co-organizer for that conference, um, another uh, very established Montgomery scholar. And we were amazed by the range of papers and the engagement with gender and the different engagements with gender. So we put out a call and we, We'd been in touch with McGill Queen's Press before that, and they were interested. So um, they actually wrote a letter for us for a shirk application for the conference. Um, so they were quite committed to something um, early on. Um, and so we put out a call afterwards for uh, people to submit um, revised uh, or essays for the collection. And we, it, we were, Holly and I were very overwhelmed. <laughs> by the response and they were all so amazing and such different voices as well and you know Brent and Dakota what you were saying you know we had some very established scholars we had some very scholarly articles and then we had some really more sort of uh, interesting articles about experiences um, with gender and Montgomery and you know in the end we had to make some very tough decisions um, and you know we were encouraged by um, the readers and the editors uh, at Royal Queens to to keep it to a scholarly kind of focus but I still lament losing some of the other voices that we had to make the decision to step away from in order to keep the scholarly tone I think that really showed a world of Montgomery. However, the volume that we have, I think, is quite amazing. And it's there are gaps, certainly, but it really shows a range of approaches to Montgomery, but all centered around uh, gender. Um, and, you know, from different uh, countries and different perspectives, we have Jane Urquhart's uh, creative nonfiction response to it that emerged out of reading that she gave at the conference. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been a process and everyone's been wonderful to work with um, and, uh, and very open to some of the direction that we received both from um, all the readers of the volume and then the editors as well. Yeah, good. Yeah, no, I have some things. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm very pleased. It's a rich book, and 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 really quite new out as we're we're recording here at the end of November in 2021, and so we're pleased to hear it. Um, I I wonder, like, yeah, no, let's let's actually stay inside the book just for for a minute to the question of like. Uh, you have kind of movements is, is sort of how it felt to me as I was reading it more than just sections. Can you kind of, I don't know, speak to, speak to those various different kind of uh, uh, sections or walk us through there and, and maybe just kind of each take a section and, and speak to it. Would that work? Okay. Sure. Yeah. yeah. It, the, the sections as they exist now um, changed over the, the process. Um, uh, sometimes uh, um, we came up with a number of schemes at the outset and then in response to readers' suggestions, we, we changed um, <laughs> changed things around because there are so many interconnections between the pieces that there are so many different ways to connect them, so many different descriptors we could have used. So the, the sections that we ultimately settled on um, masculinities and femininities, domestic space, humor, intertexts, and being in time <laughs> were, um, yeah, the result of, of much 
manipulation and, and cogitation. And of course, as as with uh, as with all these um, sort of collections of essays, we share the essays around. People look at each other's essays and make connections. And so, just to someone who reads this book sequentially, they're going to see people making connections outside of the sections in which their uh, individual chapters are, are published. But it, it was um, <laughs> it was a complex process to, to get to this. And we did decide um, to have a, a brief introduction to each of these sections, just to situate each, each of our concepts in terms of existing Montgomery uh, criticism or certain theoretical you know, positions. So that's part of how we got to where we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll come back to the introduction here in, in a little bit, but I think um, I'm looking at the first main sections, masculinities and femininities, right? Yes. And I'm thinking like the, the title is interesting. I mean, Montgomery scholarship is, for, for those who may not know, I mean, is largely uh, created by, recovered by, uh, feminist literary critics, mostly literary critics, but some historians and, and other sorts of, of scholars and writers, and mostly women and mostly feminists are thinking in the feminist mode. And so, uh, because she was, I mean, it was 25 years, I think, after her death before we get the first real scholarly treatment of Montgomery, which is stunning, um, uh, given given her profile and and output. So, yeah, so feminist is kind of maybe the word that we might have used uh, um, in the past, but this book is Montgomery and Gender, and you're immediately kind of doing both. Can you think, uh, some, one of you speak to that and, and how that connects to this first section, which looks at different aspects of, of gender? Well, we use the plural masculinities and femininities because we don't want you know, to accept the notion um, of a simple binary that, which is the notion underlying um, concepts of gender in Montgomery's own time, of course. Um, and and so the the chapters in in that section question the, the the simplicity of the notion of masculine and and feminine. So you know, Kazuko Sakuma, she's writing about the White Feather Campaign. In, in World War One and how that relates to Rilla of Ingleside. And she's pointing out, you know, how it limits um, masculine or conceptions of masculinity and how that forces certain kinds of behavior. Or Leslie Clement, she's working on destabilizing concepts of gender. She's looking at um, concepts of death and depictions of concepts of the afterlife and depictions of death, you know, that, that developed in 19th century fiction. And and Ashley Reese, you know, talking about the Blue Castle, one of my favorite books, incidentally, is um, also um, talking about how a, a male character, Barney, who has um, traits that would be considered feminized, actually is able to, to help Valency reach some kind of freedom, you know, because of that. And, and so the, the notion that there is a masculinity and there is a femininity is just completely undercut in these works. And, you know, this is what these writers are, are bringing out, you know, in, in specific analyses of, of, of these works. Mm -hmm. 
And if I can pop in here, again, speaking to how difficult it was to organize uh, the volume once and for all, because everything slips and shapeshifts. I think Holly's article on cross-dressing and twins, uh, short story, is another one that could fit into the masculinities and femininities uh, piece of things. So, and, and, you know, many others as well. So, I mean, it was such an interesting challenge. And luckily, Holly and I were on the same campus at that time. So we can often, you know, pull up to a desk and sit across each other and say, but what about this? These ones together. What do we put these ones together? Um, but I think the key is that we're hoping that they all stay in conversation across the volume with each other. Um, yeah. I, I, look, I'm struck in, in the Holly's pieces in the humor section, but of course could be in that masculinities, femininities section as well. Uh, and so I'm, I'm curious, and this question may come out of the blue, but so I think that Montgomery understands the subversive and inversive possibilities of humor. I think she gets that. And I think she understands, I don't know how, I think it's, it's very intimate and maybe a lot of instinct for her. So you mentioned the Blue Castle, your favorite, Holly, and Laura, the way that the family is just so cruel, right? But I think we're a little protected from the cruelty because it's not her growing up in it mostly. It's actually, we're getting it at the point where she's starting to see the ridiculousness of a whole. And she's already created a bit of liberation inside of the tyranny just by her her attitude like the was it what what dinner is it the, the the family dinner is it christmas or i can't remember what season um it's a 21st 25th anniversary dinner her aunt and right. uncle yeah and, and she liked it like she likes some people and she like but the caricatures the the conversation is just so funny and then valency's whole attitude of whatever right throughout i mean they everybody th thinks she's going mad or not everybody almost everybody thinks that there's some some problem but if we as a reader don't feel that right and so like i i get how she does this like to what degree is she what to what degree did you think that montgomery was doing something inversive and subversive what leaving beside what the something is just for the moment do, do you knew that she was doing stuff to us to people uh, to the readers. I think she was definitely. And I, you know, the section of our uh, collection called intertext, I think really shows that because in that section, I mean, mostly what she's, what uh, the intertext essays are working with are masculinist traditions and how Montgomery incorporates them and, and subverts them in her narratives. So I, I mean, this is a woman who had a lot of pressures come to bear on her, both as she was growing up with these maternal grandparents who were unloving, then with as a woman who, you know, once she came of age and her grandparents had died, what was going to become of her, um, you know, so then she, she wanted a family of her own, so she got married, you know, that wasn't the best. But, you know, and then she was a minister's wife, so she had all these pressures on her and so she understood this kind of really subtle humor and this this need to turn things which is delightful because the ironies and the you know the the putting up with but exposing at the same time the ludicrousness of how people behave 
Um, you know, I love Anne and Wendy Poplar's where all the community members think that Anne, who's now a writer, is going to, um, I can't remember the phrase, but write them up and expose them. And Montgomery was doing that with probably so many people um, in her world. Um, so I do think she, it was purposeful. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I just think of Virginia Woolf in A Room of One's Own and how she talks about these women writers who, if they had no pressures on them, what how incandescent their writing would be and, and all of that. I wonder if that would be the case or if we would have lost something if Montgomery hadn't had all these pressures on her and needing to find these subtle and ironic means of expression. Mm, yeah, I, I think the 40-year pressure on her in the 20th century was like it comes hard, like there's a price to pay for it but but we do get you know a kind of pressure that you know that creates diamond rather than than dust only right so yeah ollie did you have a thought about that subversive inversive quality the what montgomery's doing to us as readers i i agree with laura i she is deliberately poking us you know she 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 was a cool professional. This is the other thing, you know, this is the thing that I really, really admire about her now that I've read all her, her journals and her letters and all those things that I hadn't read when I was, you know, 10 years old. This is a very sharp mind, hard at work, making a professional career and trying to get some fun out of something that must have become drudgery sometimes when she was, you know, Carol Gerson talks about, she uses the drag to dance chariot, chariot wheels phrase from um, Montgomery's journal and how she's um, forced in some ways by, you know, the publishing situation in which she finds herself to do what seems to be the same thing over and over. So for the sake of her own sanity and because she's smart enough to do it, she starts putting in those digs. You know, those are always there. They're there in the uh, the short fiction, you know, they're there in the novels. They're there particularly when she reworks material from the short fiction into the novels, in my mind. So yeah, she's fully aware of everything she's doing. Wow, I just actually, there's so many, like I think of it and as you speak to it, I think actually it's sort of done differently too in the different kinds, like in the story girl, it's the narrator that's doing a lot of that. Um, and in the Blue Castle, it's the narrator, but Valency too, like the, the, the narrator is shaping it. But it seems to me in the Anne books, it needs to kind of be Anne that pulls out the ridiculous or the, the inversive or the upside down or someone who's pressing back or something. But then in Emily, we see it's really embodied in her perspective. So yeah, it seems it, seems it, it has to shift. I'd have to think about that, how inversion and, and subversion work together with humor. But yeah, there's, there's less humor, obviously, in Emily of New Moon and our different kind of humor, right? So yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Though when you think of that scene in Emily Climbs with Miss um, Royal and the dog, <laughs> I mean, that is one of the funniest things I've ever read. You know, that's just hilarious well she's a i mean she's a great vignette writer too like in in the end i mean one of the what makes story girl so good i think is that we have you know we have a nice literary um 
con uh, connectivity of the whole thing, but the tableaus are, are, are sort of genius in the, in the moment. And then that character who ends up being, thinking of Virginia Woolf, uh, Virginia Woolf the lighthouse, uh, who ends up being sort of the lighthouse, that uh, solitary, uh, that, that vertical figure upon whom all else kind of judge themselves. It seems to me that Sarah Stanley kind of fits that in that book. Yeah, intriguing. Well, uh, Okay, I, we can't we can't talk about that forever. We want to we want to kind of move things along. Uh, but I'm curious. We need to have the next conference on Montgomery and humor, uh, or something like that. Or Ellen Montgomery, what is she doing to me? And so, <laughs> so so besides that, are are you folks ready for a bit of like a flash round? So this is a, just an interlude in Captain Jim's parlor. Maybe not talking about the deep uh, ununderstandables of life or the imponderables, but just some kind of fun questions to get to know. Now, uh, I haven't done this before with a panel with two. And so uh, I'll, I'll go back and forth, make sure I say your name so that, that you get that. Uh, and okay, so Holly, Holly. Okay, so are you a coffee person or a tea person? Tea in the morning, coffee at lunchtime. Oh, excellent. Laura? Definitely coffee all the way, although Bengal spice tea in the evening. Bengal spice tea is just awesome. Although it has, it takes a longer steep time, I find, at least the kind that I buy. And then I add a drop of milk. And so I don't know. I just love, I just love it. I don't know why. That's all I have, like boxes of, in case it ever, like I bought a bunch for the pandemic in case it ever like okay. goes away. So when the apocalypse comes, I know yeah. where to find the Bengal spice tea. That's right. Well, I'm, well. I'm here. I don't know. I don't know who has the toilet paper, but I've got the Bengal spice tea, uh, as well as some 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 coffee. All right. Uh, uh, raspberry cordial or red currant wine, Laura? Sorry, I'm laughing very hard at that question because anyone who knows me will always know the answer is wine. <laughs> Just it doesn't have to be red currant, right? Yeah, that's right. What about you, Holly? Uh, definitely wine. Def uh, Laura and I have share that. <laughs> and have many times. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Well, and that's partly what conferences are for. So we'll we'll, um, we'll see that. Holly, October's or June's? Oh, October. Okay, Laura. So I was recently saying this to someone the other day. I'm like a puppy. I love every season that I'm in. It's like I am like it's snowing, yay! It's raining, yay! It's sunny, yay! It's spring. It smells musty, yay! It's fall. It's beautiful colors. So I, it's something I totally like about myself. So both is my answer. <laughs> and all it sounds like. So that's, that's great. Yeah. And, uh, and you live actually in a little protected space in the Maritimes that has a wee bit different kind of seasonal setup than some of the other places not that far from you, right? So yes, I live in fairyland paradise here in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Unlike Corner Brook, where, you know, it's snow snow. And it's actually, if you, if you really wanted my favorite month, it, it would have to be February when oh. the skiing is at its best oh yeah we don't in prince Edward island skiing is a tough gig it's you have to be really committed uh to it and have great friends or a podcast or something there's a lot of up for for not as much down as you might like although uh snowshoeing is is pretty cool we have lots of trails and, and things like that so okay uh well holly like so choose one of these then a day at the beach or a walk in the woods or an afternoon in the archive Oh, oh, that's tough. 
I love a day at the beach because I'm a big ocean swimmer. If I'm near the ocean, I have to get in. I don't care how cold it is. Um, day at the beach, walk in the woods. Um, I do that pretty much every day. I take a walk along the trail near my home. And an afternoon in the archives is pretty much irresistible, isn't it? Yeah. I do wish you could have coffee in the archives but for those afternoons. But yeah, no, I, I would love that. What about you, Laura? So I'm not much of a beach person, being a fair redhead. Um, I always have to cover up. I'm the one with the hat and the SPF 400 and the long sleeve shirts. Um, <laughs> so definitely a walk in the woods, which I, like Holly, do pretty much every day. Um, but I mean, that's so unfair to make us choose between that and the archives because you kind of need both for the perfect life. You know, the morning in the archives, the afternoon in the woods so you can think about all the cool stuff you just read so maybe that'll be my retirement holly <laughs> yeah it, it strikes me it's not very often an archive is like in the woods or on a beach either <laughs> there's some bad planning out there <laughs> yeah that's well i mean so uh we've been a little locked out but you know um i just published a piece that came from the bodley and well that's right in downtown oxford right uh or um um you know uh, i've been in archives in suburban chicago we have one here in charlottetown kind of a couple at the university and at the confederation center and and of course in ontario university archive so like yeah they're we don't get the woods very often with the archive. Probably woods is better mix anyway than, than beach. But you know something? I'm now thinking we need to do this. Can we make this happen? You know, in Wolfville, we have this thing called common uncommon art. We hang art pieces on all kinds of cool things. So what, there's one place, Reservoir Park, when you walk in it pre-COVID, they, they have stations and you could go and experience art. You could play the flute. You could read something. So. Wouldn't it be awesome to have some kind of archival, especially now that we have digital stuff like QR codes and things, to have an archival connection to a walk in the woods? I feel kind of gorgeous. Yeah. Let's let's work with Robertson Library at UPEI and make this happen. I'll have to I'll have to figure that. Out. That's a good idea piece. Um, there is, um, I, I believe the the Anne manuscript is being prepared archivally, uh, so that's going to be nice. But we also have art in the park here at the. Con uh, in Victoria Park in downtown Charlottetown at the end of the summer. That goes with our Crow Festival. The Crow, um, we have a big Crow Parade. It's pretty creepy and awesome. And so, yeah, that would be intriguing. How could you how could you bring the archives out without destroying the things, right? And it could be that uh, we can do that digitally or visually. So, yeah, this is, where, this is where we need the future, I think, right? So then thinking, so thinking kind of like, Along the lines, maybe, uh, Laura, I'll give you a second to develop this since you may actually just invent the whole proposal right now. If you, I want you to think, uh, Holly, if you had, and it's okay to take a little longer, you're supposed to do these without thinking, but you can think about this one. If you had like a large grant for Montgomery Studies development in some area, what would you, and it, and it doesn't have to be just like a book or a conference or something, what would you see, what would you want to see that uh, used for? This is a way to think about how, where you would like to see things develop. I've, I, I'm really interested and long have been in Montgomery's career before Anne of Green Gables. To me, the, the freelance career 
is just gripping. And I have spent a lot of time in archives and libraries in various parts of North America looking at the magazines and newspapers in which she published poems and short stories, um, trying to read, you know, whole issues of particular magazines. What else is on the same page? How do those interact? To me, and you know, the UPEI does have the um, Ryrie Campbell collection, which has um, some of those things. To, but when you go online, what you see is the individual story and not the whole issue. To, to me, if I had a lot of money to spend, I would want to track down every single one of those, however many hundred stories and poems, and um, digitize them all and have them available as a database for, for scholars. And not just the stories and poems, but the whole issues in which those things appeared. You know, to, to set it up for the purposes of, of periodical studies. I've had the chance to do that a little bit. So just the discovery, I've had the chance to do the discovery a little bit of where the stories are set. And I'm just always struck by the fact that the advertisement just always seems like the wrong thing for whatever <laughs> the thing I'm reading is. And maybe I'm just a bit too anti-commercial or something. But it always strikes me that, you know, seeing Santa Claus shave his legs is maybe not the best thing next to this kind of lovely piece or something, right? Like I just, there's always something incongruous or disconnected or like, uh, you know, some political out or like um, something that we now know to be poisonous and deadly for human consumption right next to, you know, a piece about discovering love or, or, you know, asking a hard question. So I'm always, I think you're on the right track there. That's, a, that's exactly what I love about looking at the magazine and newspapers and, and seeing the whole context, just the, well, for one thing, seeing what else is going on in the world at the time, reading Montgomery's stories in relationship to the other fiction in those things. And quite often I have to say, hers were the best ones in, in the magazine or in the paper. And, and yeah, just seeing the ads and thinking, how do people, how did people at that time fit all this information together? You know, anyway, that that's what I would do. I I just want, I want everyone to be able to see this stuff. You know, and some of it you still do have to go to libraries and sit through, scroll through microfilm or or whatever to to look at it. And it's endlessly fascinating. And I want it to be more broadly accessible. Great, cool, Laura. You can't take her idea, Holly's idea, but uh, well, what's your thought? <laughs> I do endorse her idea, though. I do so endorse. Let's, let's hope that the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada has a lot of money. Yeah. So, and I can't decide between two projects. Okay. Uh, of course, have you have you gotten that theme from me so far? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I think uh, the Montgomery Institute now has an equity, diversity, and inclusion committee. So, I would love to get some funding behind that and and really. Uh, get some work happening on, you know, looking at Montgomery, seeing where things can go, addressing some of the gaps that have been in Montgomery scholarship up to this point. Um, so I think that piece would be really interesting, comparing Montgomery with other people at her, in her time period, or looking at how maybe some racialized authors have worked with Montgomery's uh, narratives and rewritten them. Um, I think there's some really 
fascinating work that can be done there. But the other one, and I keep saying this to myself as we slowly wend our way through this pandemic with its ups and downs, because when we live through a pandemic, I would just love to maybe go back and focus on like her journal entries, some of the article, the short stories that she wrote that are set in quarantine, right? Like it's, there's some interesting stuff going on there. And, and cause I keep thinking, obviously she's living through this pandemic, but I don't remember, and I haven't gone back to the journals to reread them. I don't remember her addressing it directly. I mean, we know that Fred was sick. Uh, we know that people were sick, but you know, I feel like if I had the time to write a journal right now, I'd be lamenting the pandemic i'd be talking about my anxiety every day as i read the news and new variants and things so it's kind of interesting that it seemed to be and so maybe this is also a piece holly where we go back and look at what the discourse was at that time was it something that people just didn't talk about quite as much as we are you know so that type of thing so i feel like that would be a really interesting uh study yeah, I think so too. I was actually struck. I, I did read the journals and I may have missed something, but I, I, I read them with with that question in mind because we have those like, you know, shutdowns in like some of the major cities and Chicago is not that far from, there was a, a shutdown in 1919 in Chicago and it's not that far from Toronto and some of the airwaves they would have shared. Although it's a couple of years before, it's 22 before she hears the radio, I think. So yeah, I was surprised, like she knows it's hot, like people are getting sick, but it doesn't seem to be remarkable in the way it is for us. And it could be a Leesdale thing like that it's not really a suburb of Toronto yet in the way that Norval would be when she moves there a few years later. So, but I don't know. I was, I was, I am kind of amazed that, you know, how formative this was, but like, I think she was still, um, Montgomery was still in the war mentally. Right. And she was still working on Rilla a couple of years after too. Right. Does that, that make sense, Laura? I don't know. It does. I mean, but what strikes me is that, I mean, she read the news rapidly all the time it would have been up on whatever the discourse was out there so i mean and you're right maybe the war took so much out of her and or and so much of her energies and and that could be true for everyone i mean we're experiencing the pandemic without necessarily a world war at the same time on wood. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, so maybe that was it. They, they couldn't focus on the pandemic at that time because there was a bigger thing going on. Yeah, yeah, it could be. Um, I and I'm curious. It'd be. I'm curious from a medical history perspective, right? You know, Fred, her very best friend, cousin, dies of probably a generation of the Spanish flu. Whether it it's the one that ends up being the the virulent kind. Um, I remember seeing the graves at churches in Canadian graves of soldiers at churches in England and Wales, um, places in the north where they they were couldn't get out in time, right? They couldn't get back to Canada and they end up dying after all that war there. And so it's just so striking to me. And yet that that pandemic aspect is not as as it's not as much as the in the American it's more in the American consciousness than it is in Montgomery's for sure at the time. Yeah. That those are great topics. Yeah. I think that's 
I think that's brilliant. Um, work to be done. There's lots of work to be done. So if there's grad students listening in, this is your chance to to, to make your connection. Uh, and and we're always kind of uh, we love hearing new conversation points as well. So 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 bringing this kind of around to the end, I wanted to I wanted to comment from my perspective on Ella Montgomery and gender the the title and about some of the great content. Uh, and, and you start the 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 book off with Anne's brilliant con, you know, I mean, you don't want me because I'm a boy, right? I'm not a boy. I mean, she's not a boy. So like, I mean, Montgomery's whole kind of like novel career begins here, right? In a sense, like it begins with this, this, this great uh, uh, gender mistake, this great, um, 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 a total puzzlement that uh, that ends up, uh, you know, Matthew and Merle can later call it providential, but it feels pretty painful in the moment, at least to Anne, uh, and very puzzling to them. And so uh, in Montgomery's, you know, they, the chapters writers uh, in your book, they look at gender, sex, sexuality, all these kinds of things, the the various parts that we talked about. But the the list is is all women, at least as I understand it in the in the the way that they describe themselves in the biographies and and Moncast listeners might know that I'm actually a boy uh, you know a man sometimes and I'm wondering if we could kind of talk about it from that I mean I love going to the the first Montgomery conference I went to but it was pretty striking being in a room of 150 pretty you know prof- professional um, people uh, and 147 of them are women and you know or something like that uh, and, and and when I would see a guy like a couple of them were actually partners that were along for the ride right and and I thought it was striking it was it was a nice contrast to what you can get in academia sometimes but I just wanted I don't I don't want to press too hard but just to kind of tease that up a little bit is this what I, is there a gendered reality of Montgomery scholarship uh, how, you know does it focus scholarship or are we looking for their voices how, how do you folks kind of see this and uh and i would love for you to take the mic and kind of draw us into this because i know you've thought about it i think we're always looking for other voices every scholarly field is always or should be always looking for other voices and i think the the way the field has ended up being um woman dominated probably has to do with its um its roots in feminist scholarship as uh, we detail in in our introduction um you know it was a specific project in the 70s and 80s for women scholars to focus on women writers and you know that has its own sort of snowballing effect you know it brings in more women who are looking at other women writers and so you end up with um, that kind of focus. But as you know, Laura mentioned, there are other there are other perspectives that we we all want want to to see in there. And I think too, there's this um, commercial structuring of literary genres and the way books are sold. I'm always all about the material. <laughs> so the way books are sold. Um, in in bookstores where you know look at the covers they're marketed for for girls or they're marketed for boys and that has to have an effect on who wants to 
or is willing to be seen reading certain kinds of things, you know, and, and we all, and I'm sure that I've responded to books in this way too, that I think, no, that I, I'm not the audience for that just based on the way it's been marketed. And, you know, the, until marketing, <laughs> I don't know how we can force the publishing industry to change this, but think, you know, Books are marketed for young adults. Books are, are marketed for children nine to 12. I was in our local bookstore the other day and the, the age categories are on the shelves. And until we um, can get publishing moving away from that, I think people are going to be dissuaded or persuaded in certain directions based on these very traditional concepts of who reads what and what's the boy's book and what's the girl's book. And that's always going to affect those few of us who go into literary studies professionally, it has to have an impact on us. And I'm just thinking, having said that, um, yeah, all the work I do is on women writers, really. Yeah. <laughs> because I did had my education in the 70s and 80s. Right, yeah, sure. And of course, women dominated the novel category in a lot of ways in English literature uh, in in your period, the 19th century as well, right? Um, I'm a Jane Austen fan, and so um, uh, I, I don't know. There may be some more boy readers there. Yes, there, there there are, but there once someone is as far in the past as Jane Austen, the categories change, I think. Though at the same time, I'm constantly enraged by people referring to Jane Austen heroines fainting on every page. None of Jane Austen's heroines faint, except in her teenage, you know, comic fiction where they do it, where she has them do it because it's funny. They don't yeah, do yeah. this. And it's, it's people who haven't read Jane Austen making assumptions based on, you know, their conception. This, these are books that are written for girls. And therefore, you know, this is what happens to 19th century heroines. Oh, drives me crazy. Sorry. I guess that was an Anne Radcliffe sort of specialty, wasn't it? Uh, the Mysteries of Adolfo. There, there is some uh, uh, fainting, and I just I can never figure out quite uh, whether there's any um, uh, tongue in her cheek, and it's not seed cake uh, that she's trying to dig out. So I don't I don't know uh, Anne Radcliffe well enough. I found Jane, uh, I found Montgomery through my wife, who, who hands me the book and says, "This is actually your kind of thing." And uh, but I found Jane Austen through actually C.S. Lewis through one of his literary essays uh, because he was a fan. So it's a different like. So I think I think we have different modes, and that may be part of that. I don't know, Laura. What's your, what's your thought from the scholarship angle? Yeah, and that's what you just said is really interesting because one you found through path a male pathway and the other one through a female pathway. And I think that that's really it. And the fact that these are stories about girls too. I mean, Jane Austen is a story about young women, you know, brink of adulthood who have to make important decisions about who they're gonna marry. Um, so, which is the rest of their life, right? Like these are the crucial questions. Whereas Montgomery tends to focus on, on childhood. So that too is another, so in regional, which is another reason why not to read if you're a serious male scholar, um, all of those types of things. So there's all kinds of reasons why men don't come to this. But I will tell this story. So it was the second conference paper I ever gave. I believe it was 1995. It was here at Acadia at the Thomas H. Riddell Symposium. And I wrote a paper on Anne of Green Gables, pruned down and branched out, which has since been published, um, which was my first publication, very exciting. Um, and after I gave my paper, you know, all the 
elder statesman scholars were like, good work, I'm, you know, you young scholar, because I was, of course, freaking out. And then this lawyer came over who had given a paper um, from New Brunswick and chastised me, male, can I say that, male lawyer, kind of chastised me. He said, you know, I grew up, you kept referring to the reader as her and she. I grew up reading Montgomery. Myself and my siblings ran around our farm. We renamed everything. We pretended to be Anne, all of us, despite our genders and everything. So I really took that to heart and thought about it for the next, you know, when was that? 30 years. Um, but I, you know, it's interesting because I do think that was a little anomalous and and not worthy of chastisement. So there's a gender piece there that would be interesting to unpack. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things I have to say, Montgomery studies is such an incredible field. It is so warm and welcoming. And I do believe it's because of the feminized nature of it, is that everyone's nurturing there, for the most part, of course, there's always folks who aren't necessarily. But I mean, I have never encountered a scholarly community like this in other places. There is just something so remarkable. However, it is also a very certain kind of white, particular socioeconomic kind of environment as well. And so I think it would, you know, I mentioned the EDI committee of the Montgomery Institute and more, more looking at non-binary, LGBTQ kinds of questions, questions of race. I mean, Carol Gerson in our volume writes about, um, she does a comparison of Montgomery, one of Montgomery short stories to an indigenous writer, contemporary, who was a contemporary of Montgomery's. I, we need more of that work. We need other eyes to come to bear um, on Montgomery's work. So, you know, I, I hope we can transmogrify our warm welcoming into welcoming, you know, not just identified white folk, but all kinds of other people into our scholarly community as well. There you go. Oh, thank you. I think that's a great, actually, that's a great way to finish as, as someone who, who, I mean, I, f I felt invited, uh, but to, to be, to be fair, I'm part of the gender reality, at least in my Canadian context is that, you know, like I'm often talking to women. I mean, like, I don't want to be Gilbert or like, I don't know what boys in the books, I guess Beverly maybe, but like, I don't, but I mean, Beverly's not a very good boy's name today. I don't want to be a, the boys in the books. I want to be, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I, I quite read like that anyway, but I, I would rather be Emily than Bernie, I think. So, so, okay. So that, thanks both. Uh, so uh, I just want to thank you. So thank you, Laura, for, for joining us uh, from Nova Scotia today. Okay. And thank you, Holly from, from Newfoundland. Oh, thanks a lot, Brenton. It was great fun. Thanks, Brenton. It was. It was really a pleasure. Yeah. And uh, well, so this uh, brings us to a close. And as always, you can check out the work of the Ellen Montgomery Institute at ellenmontgomery.ca. Uh, already, we've referred to the Digital Kindred Spaces, the Ray uh, Campbell Collection. And so that's available there, as well as the newest releases of the Journal of Ellen Montgomery store Studies and all kinds of digital resources. If you've enjoyed the modcast and would like others to enjoy it as well, please share on social media and give us a rating. It really helps shares the news about the modcast and the Institute's work. And uh, I'm your host, Brenton Dickinson, and I'm here with technical director, Christy McKinney.
Now, thinking about our conversation today, and I think it's great that we can close with a passage from the project itself, from scholar Elizabeth Apperley's piece, Magic for Marigold, Engendering Questions About What Lasts. And this is what she says. Wave and undertow, affirmation and undercutting. There is no clear end for a time or an idea or a book that people continue to read. Modernism celebrated fractured time, wounded time. Montgomery insisted on time's deep continuities. She endorsed healing. Farewell. Farewell.